Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Crute, co-editor of Film Comment. In the epigraph to his new book, writer-slash-film-programmer-slash-performance-artist Stanley Stinter succinctly describes his project. Last Movies is a dedication to the absence of choice, to chance. If there is any bias in the cast list, it is a bias coded into the telling of the first century of cinema that I parasitize. The result, a forensic of the last earthly dance of a star and the pause they took, if indeed they did, to catch a movie. Conceived of as both a writing project and an epic durational film program, Last Movies delves into the seemingly morbid subject of the final films watched by a selection of 20th century luminaries. Delving into the lives and ultimate viewings of figures from Franz Kafka to John F. Kennedy to Kurt Cobain to the Heaven's Gate cult. The book maps a strange and surprising cultural history from a seemingly arbitrary scatterplot. My co-editor Devika Garish and I sat down with Stanley and critic Erica Balsam, who wrote the book's foreword, to discuss this fascinating new book, how it is actually a life-affirming project, and why Stanley dressed up like a cop for a recent Q&A in London. We hope you enjoy the conversation. This is actually our last podcast of 2023 before our end of the year critics poll countdown. That will actually be the final. So this is kind of penultimate. I just needed to set it up that way because it sounds so poetically perfect. Because today we're discussing a movie and a curatorial project called Last Movies. Penultimate podcast, colon, last movies. Yeah, penultimate (laughs) podcast, colon, last movies. And we have two wonderful guests, uh, one of whom is the author of the book, and the other has contributed the introduction to the book on the podcast today. So I will start by asking Stanley, who's the author of the book, to introduce himself. Hello, my name is Stanley, and I'm the author of the book. My surname is pronounced Stinter, and Last Movies is the first book that I've written. It's a kind of consummate toilet book. That's its intention. It's a double header. I mean, it's a film program, and I've also called it a durational moving image artwork, but that's partly to overcome licensing issues as I perceive them in venues Mm. that can't afford what is a pretty epic undertaking because the ideal presentation for the last movies is, it is durational. It's, It's a day and a night in lived human experience. That's not channeling the kind of duration of Christian Markley. Rather, it's practical. It allows us to get from almost the inception of cinema with Charlie Chaplin watching The Kid. Or Kafka watching The Kid. Yeah. To the present day with Jean-Luc Godard watching Phony Wars. It's an alternative read or a parallel view of the first century of cinema, according to the films that were seen by a selection of its notable lives. And by notable lives, what I mean is 
these people have been afforded sufficient scrutiny in their last days and hours so that we know that they watched the film. If they watched the film, we know what they saw, if indeed they did watch something. So I'm kind of parasitizing the available history. It is a, um, a, a collection, but not a selection. And that's something that Erica speaks to very typically articulately in her foreword, which was originally um, authored as program notes for a durational screening. So perhaps Erica could speak to that. A, a, a brilliant transition. So who is Erica? <laughs> Uh, hi, I'm Erica Balsam. Uh, I'm a reader in film studies at King's College London, and somehow I have found myself repeatedly enlisted into Stanley's projects over the years. Uh, and so in this case, as he said, I wrote a kind of brief program note for a screening that happened uh, in Porto in which I tried to sort of theorize why someone might do something like this. You know, I found it a really fascinating work of writing, you know, in addition to kind of a historiography as well. Erica, I you say in your introduction, it's it's a project structured around contingency, you know, because it's um it's a way of organizing history that seems so completely random, right? It does not follow some sort of structural principle that yields coherence. It's Stanley, you're you're finding these pieces of evidence that show what these famous people across history, what the last movie they saw before they died, and then sort of working backwards to draw connections that don't necessarily elucidate some kind of order or meaning, but feel significant. I mean, I think that's the thrill, right? Like it, there is a, almost a conspiratorial aspect to the project where you're like drawing these connections and they they don't really necessarily lead anywhere but they're really uh, fun to chase and but some of them really do open up insights into the lives of these of the either insights into the films or insights into the lives of the dying viewers and yeah. and I'm thinking particularly like one that pops into is the Peter Sellers passage which is really just you know you you kind of learn so much about who Peter Sellers was through his obsessive and his obsessions through your uh, description of his last view, his last films. I was wondering, Stanley, if you could start us off by talking about the genesis of the project. You know, what sort of sparked your interest in this as a organizing principle for some sort of collection, as you described it, a view through film history. Why, why last movies? I guess. Olaf Palmer, the former Swedish prime minister, was assassinated, leaving the Grand Theatre in Stockholm. This is something that has been, um, you know, covered extensively, although his assassin remains at large and we don't know why he was killed. When I found out about this, of course, my question was, what was he watching? And it turns out he was watching a film by Suzanne Austin called The Mozart Brothers. I'll veer off just briefly um, to say that after I'd finished writing the book, I contacted Susan Austin in the hopes that she would come and present her film, because as well as the book, there is this ongoing program at the ICA. And she responded saying that she has never, she's never really spoken about the connection, as if there is a connection between her film and the death of Palmer that 
she didn't want to exploit it, although her next film was about the death of a government minister. And most significantly, most interestingly, she had asked Olaf Palmer to appear as the megalomaniacal theatre director at the centre of the film, which is an inversion of Don Giovanni. So there's a good chance that he was at the cinema that night precisely because she had asked him to be in that film, which, of course, he refused. Um, Anyway, after finding out about Palmer, Ian Curtis is a is a well-known example of someone who is supposed to have watched a particular film on the night that they died. And I began to think perhaps there is an organizing principle that we can find through films that were seen by people just before they died and present them as a program that allowed an audience or enabled an audience to see what those who see no longer last saw. And to my astonishment, you can kind of map um, representing each development or trend in cinema over the last century with an individual and their death and their film. So it grew, it grew in that way. Mm. And I want to know about your methods as well, some of which we actually see in the book, you know, through correspondences that you've included. And of course, you have a bibliography. But first, Erica, I so in your introduction, there are two things you talk about that I found, you know, fascinating and really helpful in framing the project. So one of them is, of course, this theoretical connection between death and the cinema that has been made, you know, just across all of the writing on cinema. Um, And, uh, you know, this kind of cinema is a kind of mummification, a petrification of reality, uh, death animated, all of these ways in which people have drawn those connections. But you really emphasize also this, the uniqueness of this project as a curatorial project that is organized around chance you know so i i was wondering if you could speak to those two ideas and and sort of what stanley's approach i guess revealed to you about cinema history that other approaches haven't maybe yeah i mean i think there's really this commonly talked about idea that cinema is somehow a medium that like animates but also mortifies and that there's some kind of like deathly encounter that drives our kind of fascination for cinema, our desire for cinema. And sometimes that's talked about in terms of the way that cinema can register contingency. Um, So kind of fleeting and consequential moments end up being preserved. So the meaningless kind of comes to stake a claim on our memory or perception and so on. And so I thought maybe there was an interesting link between this kind of contingency and Stanley's embrace of chance as a curatorial method. I mean, when we had a conversation about this um, at the launch at the ICA, I said like, well, Stanley, like, what do you have against curators? You know, like one way of understanding this project is as a kind of pushback to a whole um, industry of personal taste and, you know, quality and judgment and all of these things that we we normally think about as governing the selection of films. 
Um, and this instead sets up a series of rules and then allows those rules to, or the one rule really, to dictate what will be shown. And so actually the quality of the film, the interest of the film ends up being maybe beside the point. Um, and that to me, I mean, we can connect this embrace of kind of chance procedures to all kinds of avant-garde strategies from the past. But I think it's also interesting as a sort of um, suppression of a willful suppression of the will or a kind of negation of certain a certain kind of authorship. And what's interesting to me is that that's the principle that governs the film program. But then actually in the book, Stanley's authorship sort of runs wild. You know, it's like the book becomes, um, Clint, as you said, a kind of like set of writing prompts to then be able to like proliferate all of this material that goes far beyond ostensibly just like illuminating the one question of what was the last movie someone saw. You know, it goes in a thousand different directions and is, um, as David said, like marked by this conspiratorial paranoid logic. And so I thought it was also funny that the film that launched the series at the ICA was JFK's last film from Russia with Love. And this connection to conspiracy really, um, I think I became paranoid and I started looking for connections. And I read um, Don DeLillo's Libra uh, because I had always kind of meant to, but I thought, okay, great book about the JFK assassination. And lo and behold, in this book, there is a line that says, whenever there's a famous finish in the vicinity of a movie house, it behooves you to know what's playing. This is history with a fucking flourish. And this is said uh, in reference to the, the death of John Dillinger. And so I thought, like, did Stanley know that? Is everything connected? But in fact, he says no. And that he came to know about this quotation only after he had already finished writing the book. So I think this question of the paranoid logic, the meaningful, the meaningless, um, chance, connections, looking for connections where there maybe are none, like all of this, I think, is really at the heart of the project, much more than any kind of morbid fascination with death. Yeah, I think that the the, the book avoids you know, descriptions of bodies and that sort of thing, which is, which, you know, thankfully, as I was, as I was reading it, I was like, oh, good. okay, good. We're not going to learn about Kurt Cobain. Clint cannot handle gore not at all. all. <laughs> but I guess, so yes, you have, you use this kind of arbitrary selection process, but there is also some uh, selection there. You're, you're, you decide which figures to include from the many, many, many that you could. And I think you see that comes across. So one of the things that, again, it seems so impersonal, but I do think your personality really comes through it when you're reading the book and the text and also in the curation, I guess we could call it, of the subjects. And I'm thinking in particular of the Ian Curtis chapter, which to me really kind of like, it seemed like you were really, you knew a lot about this and you discussed your own interest from a young age in this figure. So I guess my question is, once you established this set of parameters for the book itself, how did you then drill down and decide which figures to select and uh, go from there? I'm not familiar with anyone else last, in the last century who watched a film just before or close to their deaths that is not included in the book, apart from Duncan Hannah. Um, who I found out about too late, 
Mel Kalman, who was a British cartoonist who died at the um, Empire Cinema in Leicester Square watching Carlito's Way. Um, Eves Klein, someone told me about, but again, it was it was too late. Apparently, Mondo Kane, the the betrayal of his work or betrayal of his work in Mondo Kane, led to his demise somehow. Um, I mean, if I can write, I would say that I learned to write over the process of making this book, and the more polemical or um the 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 passages where my personality comes through are from the project's outset because as Erica kind of suggests I'm trying to remove myself from the dogma of you know you 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 the the, the dogma of curation if you like how we are told that we should look at certain things in certain ways so the process of writing is about understanding my own relationship with a particular film and the person. Um, it's an exercise in writing about something that I wouldn't otherwise. I mean, I never expected myself to sit down and study Kurt Cobain. What about Steve Jobs? <laughs> Can we avoid studying Steve Jobs? I'm interested in how the ep- the apple fell so far because we're aware of the circumstances of the inception of a project like that and where it came from in so many ways culturally and what it became. I'm I'm kind of interested in the nuts and bolts of putting this book together. Like what, act, what was the research process like, you know, um, is uh, how did you, find all of these facts about what these figures watched before they died. I know that in there's a couple cases where um, the book has like correspondences. I believe Bob Rafelson's, you email uh, his son to confirm if he saw, if it's true that he saw the last movie he saw was Todd Phillips's Joker. Uh, there are other uh, places where, you know, you're going off of like, sort of tabloidy stories and then digging into them to figure out their veracity. So I'm just curious about how you organized the research process for this, where you began, what to what extent was fact-checking important to you? What struck me in the letter you sent to Peter was like, there is a, a seeming like um, prurience or, or there could be a kind of distastefulness in trying to find this this particular thing out, you know, asking people like, oh, what did this person in your family watch before they died? Can you confirm? So like, how do you, you know, yeah, how do you approach that question that, as Erica said, your book actually does not seem morbid, but I feel like the research process involves um, some morbid aspects. Yeah, it's not morbid. Life is the thing that we've got. And that's what I'm trying to convey, if anything, in the book. In the case of Peter Rafelson, I contacted him because the researcher helping me on the project, who would fact check certain things I found out through newspapers or books or other sources online, had sent me a email, and in it was a link to Bob Rafelson's Guardian obituary with a line, an extract that he'd pulled in quotation marks in the email. And it said, Bob Rafelson, died 
died at home surrounded by his family after watching Joker on DVD. Rafelson was someone that I was excited about the possibility of writing about, of studying. And so I kind of saved him till last. And about a couple of months before I had to hand in the book, I went back to the Guardian article and it didn't say anything about watching Todd Phillips's Joker. Rather than going back to James, I went to Rafelson Media and contacted the family to ask about this. And actually as well to make clear my intentions with the project. It feels like some of these lives are sufficiently removed or far in the past um, that they, they can kind of bear the scrutiny. But in the case of the Rafelson family, um, if they were to object to his inclusion in the book, then of course I would not have included him in it. His son Peter responded with an email that said, I can neither confirm nor deny this, but a few weeks before Bob passed away, I climbed into bed with him and we watched together his favourite actor Jeff Bridges in The Old Man. After this, I went back to James and I said, were you joking? And he said, yes. Asshole. All right, like you mentioned Kurt Cobain, you never thought yourself saw yourself researching someone like that. Were there other instances of where you were looking at the lives of figures who you had never previously thought about or been interested in? Yeah, many. Um, in some instances, we can say without any doubt, John Dillinger watched Manhattan melodrama before leaving the cinema and being murdered by the police. Boris Vian fell down dead during the screening of an adaptation of his own book, I Spit on Your Graves. And Olaf Palmer, we've already spoken about. Um, being killed, leaving the Grand Cinema in Stockholm. When we come to someone like Betty Davis, we have more of a choice, and I make this clear in the writing. So Davis, um, Davis attended the San Sebastian Film Festival, and she supposedly didn't watch anything but her hotel was mapped out as a panopticon by her assistant. And just before she left the festival, she said to the mayor how wonderful San Sebastian looked from Mount Igueldo. So in her entry, for example, I speculate that she in fact watched her make-or-break moment in Waterloo Bridge, which provided an equivalent kind of vantage point over her life. But yeah, Dillinger, uh, Boris Vian, there were many attendees. Much has been written about these events, um, be it personal accounts, be it in the media. So there was a lot of places that I could draw the information from. And Erica, I'm wondering if you have any particular selections from the book that uh I, I don't know. I don't want to call them necessarily your favorites, but you found surprising or you know, that really kind of stuck with you? I mean, I always have this fascination with cults, so Heaven's Gate, obviously, but then Fassbender as someone who I actually care about. You know, Steve Jobs, I don't know, not so much my thing. <laughs> and just to be clear for listeners, Steve Jobs watched Remember the Titans, apparently. That was the last movie he watched. Um, yeah, with <laughs> Tim Cook. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, but Fassbender, actually, I felt like I, you know, in a way learned something that I, that I didn't know about him before. And so I think there is like, uh, it's important to say that the book is like very, very readable and really engaging. And Stanley, I wonder how you think this relates to the experiences of the film screenings that you are putting on where, you know, is the film beside the point? I'm just thinking of the ICA uh, launch event, which was another very kind of well-known, well-documented last movie, which was Lee Harvey Oswald and JFK. And I don't know, I mean, it might be interesting for us to talk a little bit about why you decided to orchestrate that screening in the way that you did. And the movies were From Russia with Love. And the first 15 minutes of War is Hell. Um, But then there was an immense surprise that occurred. Stanley wrote to me in the day and said, something is going to happen. Do you want to know what it is or do you want to be surprised? He's really stoking your paranoia. Yeah. No, see see what I mean? And I said, no, it's fine. Like, you know, I trust you. I'll be Uh surprised. And of course, I knew um, that Lee Harvey Oswald was arrested in the cinema while watching War is Hell. And it was uh, on the program that we were only going to watch the first 15 minutes. And so um, I wondered if some sort of reenactment of this event might take place. And indeed, that is what happened. So two cops came into the cinema and like tackled someone to the ground with like immense physical force. And I was looking around me and I saw that some people in the room were really distressed. Yeah. Like they were really disturbed and they really thought that cops were coming into the ICA and like roughing this guy up and like pulling him out. But of course I knew it was Stanley wearing a rented police (sighs) officer's costume And so I started kind of frantically laughing just to try and reassure people that, in fact, like, this is all part of the performance. And so I thought, okay, like, this is it. Like, Stanley, you know, you were asking him to sort of describe himself. I mean, I think the other important thing is to say that there is always a sort of performative element at play in, like, many of his projects. And this one is no different. And so I thought, okay... That was it. Now it's mm-hmm. done. Um, and now we will have uh, the conversation prior to the film. But in fact, then he came back in the room, sang from Russia with Love, still wearing the police costume and wore the police costume through our entire Q&A, which I found very disturbing. I asked him to take his hat off. He wouldn't take it off. So he's wearing this police officer's costume, which I gather, and Stanley, you can jump in here. Um, You had to go through certain elaborate procedures of verification and background checks even to be able to rent this costume because it's a real outfit, illegal to wear in public. Right. That's that's right. Yeah. (laughs) But can I ask you, like, what is your attachment to liveness surprise yeah which seems at the heart of this premise too right it's this um like recapturing this instant um even in the writing of this this book that's kind of what you're doing and you know death is so much about liveness about like being in this uncapturable moment yeah 
I mean, I like to have a do. <laughs> That's reasonable. I mean, I th- I think it I think it's also interesting because it contextualizes the viewing experience really like histor- not just historically, but like it forces you to recognize that like every time we're watching something in a theater, you know, maybe you're not Lee Harvey Oswald, but some some other shit is going to go on that is that influences the way you see what the film. Yeah. And then do you remember the film or the event, right? And I think that is the also a question pursued by this book. Um, is the film actually of value as a film on its own in any way? Right, right, or right. is it about the event of the viewing, um, the screening? A marker. Yeah, I mean, essentially, this is the work of exhibition history done in a very peculiar way. I mean, you do you do talk about you know, the films themselves, but much of the work is about kind of expanding on this one particular moment in the exhibition history of these films that mostly would would otherwise be unremarked. I get the sense that Stanley is very reluctant to theorize this project himself. Yeah, I think that's coming you know? through. Which is also interesting, you know, in terms of... Um, the discussion that we were having earlier about kind of abdicating a certain idea of authorship and so on. There's a real reticence there. Stanley's nodding. Yeah. For those of you at home. (laughs) (laughs) The film comment podcast is proudly supported by Netflix presenting the riveting new film May, December directed by Todd Haynes and starring Natalie Portman, Julianne Moore and newcomer Charles Milton winner of the Gotham Award for Outstanding Supporting Performance. May-December is a deliciously original, dark-edged melodrama, proclaims Time Out, and a feast of powerhouse acting, says the LA Times. Awards Daily raves Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore are spectacular, and Charles Melton's breakout performance is the soul of the film in this twisted, layered, and expertly written dark comedy. The rap declares Todd Haynes has done something spellbinding, and the playlist says Sammy Birch's script is incredible. May, December, available now on Netflix for your awards consideration. You know, as much as we say it's about life, it's also about death. And it and like there's an element of it that you don't really want to look too directly at, I guess. Yeah, I remember reading Sauveur Lautranger became obsessed with death at a certain point. And like part of his entire project was saying, you know, we used to have all of these like elaborate rituals around death. People would die in their own homes. Death was a part of life. It was very kind of integrated, you know, into into life, but now it's kind of like absolutely sequestered, something that we, you know, go very, very, very far to not have to confront. Um, And so I think, you know, there was a recent Guardian piece 
on the last movies. And uh, I was reading through the comments, which were very interesting. And many of the comments said, you know, ah, but this project, you know, it's a bit morbid, which was sort of why I went out of my way to say earlier that I don't think it's so morbid. But I do think that it asks us to, you know, remember that death is the one thing that we all share and that it is a kind of inevitability for all of us and can arrive in absolutely unforeseeable ways at any moment in time. So, you know, any any film could become our, our last movie. Absolutely. And I think something that came up for me while reading the book is, uh, and it, it's something that actually in the almost the first anecdote you kind of touch upon, Stanley, I think when you're talking about Kafka and his interest in movies and how for him movies were kind of trivial. You know, he was interested in trashy B-movies and this was a time also in cinema history when movies didn't necessarily have a kind of, hadn't fully achieved a kind of high art status. And that is something that persists even now, I think, right? Like movies feel like entertainments, ways to break up the monotony of life. Um, you kind of expend a couple hours from your work day. Uh, they're not, we still don't really think of watching movies as a serious pursuit culturally. And I think something that kept coming up for me while reading the book was this sense of, you know, organizing a history of death through the seemingly trivial, frivolous entry point of like, what is the last movie people saw? And in many cases, it was something that they were seeing for entertainment, even though you often in your anecdotes, you, you, bring out a greater significance perhaps like with um like with Steve Jobs it's interesting because you start by saying you know it's kind of this classic sports movie and Steve Jobs wasn't even interested in sports so why was he watching it but then you kind of read into that a little bit about how the movie is about leadership and so it kind of makes sense yeah because dim dim tim is an avatar as steve's body had weakened um Oh, I lost my thread now. Just wanted to call him Dim Tim, I think. Yeah, but I guess I'm I am just responding to what Erica is saying. Like something that I found sort of unsettling on some kind of deep level while reading the book is this constant juxtaposition of the very, it seems like offhanded, trivial, unceremonial act of watching a movie, even when it's like attending a premiere. You don't think of a movie screening as as matching the ceremony of death. And so then kind of like having that be coupled with these anecdotes of death, um, I found really, yeah, very disturbing almost, you know, or, or scary in some way, in a way that I can't quite put my finger on. Well, I guess it's the loss of control. I mean, nobody in the book, none of the characters, should we say, picked a last film and then ended their life, for example, to go back... Godard. Is there? Godard. Oh, I mean, not really. Sort of. A friend of mine said, you know, you should ask Stanley what his last movie would be. And I said, no, this goes completely against the entire project because the point is that you don't choose a last movie the way that you would choose a last meal. It just happens to you, and it happens only retrospectively. Mm-hmm. And the, it just feels so... Um sacrilegious is a word that comes up, you know, to think of, you know, choosing a last movie as opposed to, again, a last meal, which somehow feels ritualistic. 
I don't know, aren't we supposed to be the serious cinephiles who would dignify moviegoing with the status of ritual? Well, I think one of the things I love about this project is that it it kind of is, uh, satirizes the idea that cinema has has that kind of value or any kind of like uh, sacral value. But you know, unlike a mo- unlike a mingle, also it's it's. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm going too deep here, but um, I'm just trying to like grapple with like what I said, my own uneasiness at like this that I felt while reading the book, and it's the, it also has something to do with cinema as like a mass produced art, and you know, and it's so even if you're watching it at home, like in the case of Chaplin, who watched Barry Lyndon uh, apparently and sent Kubrick a telegram, I was very touched by that uh, story. Um, there's something really impersonal about watching movies too. And I think that is also something that for me is a little unsettling while, while reading these anecdotes, it's very different from a meal that is cooked for you. Um, there is something about a movie where it is impersonal and it is also so, you know, you, you experience like a fixed period of time that it's not like reading a book oh I read it you know over many days or something it's you experience something that is so external to you I think and to for that to be how your death is remembered feels yeah sacrilegious is the word I keep coming back to and I know that it brings up all these ideas of ritual I think it does have something to do with this idea of cinema as like a mass reproducible medium, a commodified medium. I mean, I was just reminded one of my kind of favorite works of film criticism, aside from last movies um, of recent years, was uh, Mike Sperlinger's little pamphlet called um, Occasional Criticism. And one of the points he makes in that is that, you know, film criticism rarely attends to the event of the individual screening. We write about the film as a text, as, you know, as you said, like, a mass-produced thing that is the same for everyone. Um, But of course, as we know, the context of screenings can vary immensely. And, you know, attending to all of that liveness, you know, of of the individual screening can be very interesting. And it's something that Sperlinger says art criticism tends to do much more. Um, but film criticism, not so much. And so in a weird way, that's another way maybe of describing what Last Movies is doing. You know, I mean, Stanley was not present at any of these last encounters with cinema, but there is a sense that it's trying to restore some of that sense of the singularity of the experience of watching a film rather than, you know, the repeatable commodity of, of the film object. As a viewing experience, it's not last movies is not an undertaking for the viewer who wants to prove something or see, or have something proven to them, and the same is true of the book, um, because this would be propaganda or ideology. And though it is a scholarly project, in as much as it has been researched extensively. It's 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 a deception that the audience is invited to share freely in, right? To imagine the meetings of the images and the sounds in the films with the heads and hearts that saw them last. In this way, it's a tribute to the last movie that we will all eventually see. I'd love to hear more from you about the inclusion of Godard at the end. Um, and that is... You know, there is a 
revelation in there that is is a very small detail, but that I found absolutely sort of gutting in a way. And maybe other people might receive it differently. It's yeah, I mean the the big revelation in the book is not is not something that I have written. It's something that's brought to the project by Nicole Brenes, who who writes about uh, Jean-Luc Godard, who is the final entry in in the book. Um, I was impressed at the time by how he ensured that his publicist told uh, the newspapers that he was not sick, he was not depressed, he was simply exhausted. But Brenes adds to this in that the news of Goddard's death was first broadcast by the Liberation newspaper with whom he had a good relationship at 10 a.m. on the day that he died. But this wasn't the time that he died. This was the time of his appointment at the assisted suicide facility in Switzerland. But it would be many hours after that he actually ingested the poison. So Goddard was watching us, watching him. Yeah. And I think that I found it, I found this so overwhelming to arrive at at the end of this book, obviously, because the whole book, as Erica was saying, as you were saying, Stanley, is about the secession of control, like the secession of control involved in death and how the concept of the last movie really throws that into relief because none of us really, none of us like necessarily choose um, a last movie. And then you have this, you end on this vision of, of control, of orchestration in a sense, not necessarily of, not necessarily of the last movie. I know you, you know, of a last viewing of, of, of what uh, Godard wanted to end his life, you know, seeing unfold in a way. And so that was really moving uh, to me, but also again that it really brings out these idea of what counts, what is the event, what is the event of death, what is the event of viewing, and what is, yeah, what does it, what liveness, you know, what does it mean to be uh, to be live, not just alive, but live? Uh, I just go back to I think Marianne Doan. Uh, wrote this essay on liveness on TV and said like the principle of the central principle of live TV is death, right? Like liveness is always oriented towards capturing death. That's what makes something alive, that it captures something that can't be uh, reproduced or controlled, like the moment of in which life is lost. And I was thinking of that while reading this anecdote uh, about Godard and how that really just distills also so many of his preoccupations in his own career of like, uh, I I can think of it along two threads. One, like, uh, I think he did have this incredible sense of contingency in his work. I mean, a, a sense of reactivity. He was trying to capture the moment always politically, culturally, uh, but also this constant desire to view himself from a remove, right? Like so many of his works are autocritiques, as you say, and uh, as you say in the book, Stanley. And so, how all of this sort of comes together in this moment of death. Um, yeah, I, I honestly am struggling to have sort of coherent 
uh, responses to this because I don't know how you could, right? This is such a, uh, the way that this story brings together death and cinema and things that we cannot really grapple with, choosing your own death, viewing others receive the news of your own death. This is kind of a fantasy we entertain, right? Like, oh, to see how the world will respond to the news of one's death, all of this. And at the same time, it's so dark. So yeah, I'd be curious to hear all of your responses to that. I mean, we might say that Goddard is is the person who has come closest to actually witnessing their death, right? In you know, as you as you as you say, there is this fantasy, and he did it. He witnessed it. He's still there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're all just pondering. You know, yeah. it's a bit heavy. It's a bit yeah. heavy. Well, I was going to pick up on Davika's comments about the idea of, you know, documenting death as sort of something that is, you know, obscene, but also very common in television, especially, but also cinema. And in the book, you um, mentioned the Subruder film and you say it's the last movie, the first movie. Um, and I know I asked you about this at the ICA, but I sort of wanted to ask you again, because, you know, it's the one moment in the entire book where the concept of the last movie is used in a different way. This is not the last movie that someone famous watched, but it is a movie in which we see death captured on film. And you say the last movie and the first movie. And I wonder, you know, for me, I, I just started to... Uh, think about maybe whether this sentence captured something about the book as a whole in terms of this relationship between cinema and death and also like a changing media culture uh, throughout the 20th century. The Sapruda movie changed what people expected, the possibilities of what could be shown on screen, but much later than is often realized in as much as it wasn't until the Vietnam War that the frame, the frames of JFK's head actually being exploded were shown because the propagandizing of that time enabled such a thing to be broadcast. Um, Zapruder himself had a nightmare on the evening of November 22nd where Times Square was lit up with billboards that read, watch the president's head explode. And as such, when he sold the film to Life magazine for around $1.5 million in today's money, um, he did so with a contractual obligation that they would not show those frames. And so it was printed before it was ever screened. And something that Don DeLillo in Underworld speaks to is how, in a way, the Sapruda film became a, a sort of genesis for a particular kind of underground, not necessarily filmmaking, but film exhibition. Because the only available copies were ones that had been secreted off, pirated by labs who had copies to study. Um... Not unlike the showing of a midnight film, the event had a cachet, an edge of special intensity. 
But if those in attendance felt they were lucky to be here, they also knew a kind of floating fear, a mercury reading out of the 60s with a distinctly trippy edge, is what he writes. He also talks about uh, DeLillo, that is. He talks about this particular moment as the point at which America lost the narrative thread, which is an interesting consideration viewed through the prism of screen history. And so what did you mean when you called it the first and the last movie? Definitive answers only, I think. Just bear with me while I check where it is. <laughs> this is a hard-hitting interview. <laughs> oh, good. Um, do you not think I answered that in what I just said? I think you, I, I think you, I think you kind of answered it. I mean, I, and I think, you know, I think Devika's just baffled. About, She's like, there, yeah. are, there were movies made after the Zapruder film. What's he talking about? Uh, I think, go ahead. But Devika. I guess it's about seeing that film as some kind of um, turning point in American history and also like the relationship between history and the media. Do you also see it as being something about like the putting the lie to cinema as a documentary form in in terms of like, oh, the train is coming towards us in the theater? Well, well, you know, actually, we don't actually see people die. These, this is like the, everything you've seen to this point is our fake deaths. Now we see like something that is totally incomprehensible from it uh, as in terms of the American narrative thread, but also incomprehensible in terms of just what we've seen to date on screen. I mean, that's kind of how I, I read that statement. Yeah. And going forward, the idea of documentary can now include first film, include like this, what had previously been off limits. With his head exploded, all the illusions that made art sacred and sex sexy were exploded with it, meaning that the the kind of the the, the codes, the symbol system, the symbol systems that we had uh shifted to become something more literal in the depiction of or in the communication of certain ideas certain events yeah i think that's also what i was picking up on is that it it's also kind of this moment where film becomes something like evidentiary um you know this the this Zapruder film as like proof of something unfolding in a certain way. But what does it prove? It proves nothing. I mean, it proves that he died, but I think this is like the catch, you know? It's that like, finally, we think we have death caught on screen, but in right. fact, what do we right. learn? Right. Not a lot. You learn that like, you know, his head splattered. And, and the more you analyze it, the less you can actually know about mm -hmm. what happened. Is it, exactly. I mean, yeah, it's the, 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 the dogma of the rational. It's mm -hmm. the end of the promise of like evidentiary legibility. Right. That if we could only see more, we would know more. And this says, yeah, here, here it is. But in fact, we learn nothing further. And in a way, so in a way, I think that there is a connection there to the last movie's project in general because it is like a project that is always like asking us to try to think about how things connect only to often just like butt up against the wall that in fact like maybe they don't so i mean this is this is kind of my final i would i would i might want to end on this question i think but i but that makes me think about the uh the program itself the the durational 
experience of watching these films back to back to back to back to back. Did anybody complete this experience? And I just wonder... Uh, Did anyone survive? <laughs> well, I mean, because... <laughs> to the end. <laughs> I, I wonder what sort of uh, interesting ideas came out of this, putting these films mm. together next to each other, especially as relates to film history, because we, we referred to at the beginning of this conversation, this book as sort of a version of film history and, and uh, the history of cinema. And we haven't really talked about the film program yet. So I wonder if you guys could talk a little bit about both of you, your experiences of sitting and watching these films, if you have done that or in segments. Well, there was a dry run, should we say, for the durational program in Porto in Portugal at the Batalha Centro de Cinema. And it began at 5 p.m. and it ended at midday the following day. So it went all, all evening, all night and into the morning. And 101 people stayed the entire course. So when the films began, the doors were locked. And yeah, they watched it all. Most of them were kids. I mean, by kids, I mean like late teens, early 20s. And what really struck me was in the breaks, which I insisted be kept as short as possible, you had small clusters discussing what was going on or you had people sitting on their own. There's something different um, about this. And it was that nobody was looking at their devices. It wasn't like that that break presented an opportunity to check what was going on outside. No, they were in it. What was the level of context um, they had about each film? Was it, you know, did the program notes offer an opportunity for people to kind of read about the significance of each selection in advance? Because this is, for me, this is what is interesting is, is watching a program with this as the framework. I wonder what the like spectatorial activity is in the moment. Are you trying to think of, oh, like, I wonder what, Betty Davis was thinking while she was watching this, or I wonder what JFK was thinking, you know, is it that kind of speculative reenactment? And for that, I think you would need a really, your framework laid out in advance. Maybe there is some signposting in that I would stand up between certain titles. So for example, when Manhattan Melodrama was shown, I spoke about John Dillinger, I spoke about John Dillinger in the context of his creative relationship, shall we say, with J. Edgar Hoover. Hoover fashioning himself a film director and Dillinger his leading man, a role that Dillinger luxuriated in and kind of took to its extreme in a way that perhaps Hoover wasn't expecting. And I connect that to sculpting and uh, the sanitary equivalent of the fallen uh, opposition's scalp taken back to the village uh, with the death mask taken by Hoover of Dillinger's face after he murdered him. And Dillinger's death mask is on the cover of the book, so it's like a reclamation from the FBI because this image is in the public domain of Dillinger's face. So I might say something like that, but 
that's the full extent of the signposting. Generally, I would just talk about where was it? I wouldn't speak to the film. I'm not telling anybody um, about the film and what Dillinger might have thought about it is something that I explore in my writing, but I try to be as clear as possible in that it is just my playful interpretation. It's as much drawn from books as it is from dreams. Wikipedia. Erica, did you experience this program? I did not experience the program in Porto. Um, so my, uh, yeah, my experience is confined just to this launch event at the ICA. But it was quite interesting because, you know, it's also home turf in a way for Stanley. And so I think there were many people in the room who were already kind of devoted followers of his practice, let's say. And at one point, did you or did I ask who had come truly to see from Russia with love? And there were a couple people who raised their hands, but I think it was clear mm. that, you know, the film itself was not what had drawn them out to the cinema. And so I think it will be interesting to see over the course of the, the next months how this plays out because there are screenings once a month or something like that moving through various chapters of the book. And so this was a launch event. And so we discussed, you know, the overall kind of contours of the project and so on. Um, but as things go on, I mean, maybe Jane Campion fans will really come out for the piano and then, you know, wonder why Elena Gorfinkel and Stanley are talking so much about Kurt Cobain. You know, we'll, we'll have to find out on Valentine's Day. Tell me, Tell our listeners how they can get hands on the book and yeah, where they can catch the program. The book is available direct through Tenement Press, which is the best place to buy it. And the program is ongoing at the ICA on a monthly basis. The next event is on December the 12th with Chris Pettit in conversation on the themes of liberty and decline. It's a program bringing together Rainer Werner Fassbinder's last film, Michael Curtis's 20,000 Years in Sing Sing, with John Dillinger's W.S. Van Dyke and George Cukor's Manhattan Melodrama. Also on the Tenement site, you can purchase a Heaven's Gate t-shirt asking the big question for our times, what if they were right? Wonderful. Just in time for Christmas. Yes. Well... Thank you both for this almost last podcast, Film Comment Podcast of 2023, um, and for talking about death and life and control and chaos. I feel like this was a strangely existential conversation uh, for a Film Comment Podcast. So thank you. Thank you both. Um, congrats, Stanley, on the book and the program. I'm really excited to see you know, what other uh, sort of mischief you get up to in the screenings and, and reading about them in the gossip rag, uh, also known as Kahe du Cinema. Sorry, now I'm going on a tangent, but one of my most interesting, like one of the things that I really discovered through this book was Kenneth Anger's account of Murnau's death in Kahe du Cinema, which turned out to be just this 
like gossipy piece of apparently like libel total nonsense that has been taken up <laughs> and i think you know that that that's that's really key to understanding this book or the way that i've tried to tackle the 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 writing of it um kenneth anger's hollywood babylon is a kind of inspiration but there is a cruelty there and i hope that there isn't any cruelty in what i've done no this is do you want me to speak a little bit about the blowjob Maybe for subscribers we, we, only. Leave, leave something, <laughs> for, okay. leave sure. something for readers to discover in yeah. the book. You know, you don't want to give it all away. Um, no, but yeah, I think that this is what I was getting to earlier. There is kind of like this, it does kind of scratch this gossipy itch of mine. You know, the, the kind of pleasure you do get out of reading blind items and like, uh, biographies of celebrities that get into their, you know, affairs and and all of that, but it does so in a very kind of, um, ultimately, I think, very thoughtful and really philosophical way, more so than you know, just digging up dirt. Um, and so it is very readable, as Erica said. But anyway, now maybe we should wrap. So thank you all. Thank you both. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for your time. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.